according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in Philippians 1 this evening. We're going to wrap up our review of chapter 1, looking at verses 21 through 30, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask for our Father's blessings upon our time of study that he'd open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you tonight for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to feed us. We thank you for the truth of your word. And for the last two years in the book of Philippians, Father, uh, the blessings have been so abundant and so, uh, so wonderful. And uh, we thank you for the review and the blessings to look back and appreciate all that you've blessed us with. We thank you, Father, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, microphone's ready. Microphone's ready. All right, so we can take 10 minutes for questions tonight. Any questions that might be on your mind? Doug said he was going to have one, and then he didn't show up tonight, so that's too bad for him. We'll have to wait for next week. We'll give Randy our lead-off question then. My question uh, is about text criticism, mm -hmm. and particularly... How, when you're teaching it, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Uh, yeah, when yeah, you're teaching yeah. John chapter 8, uh, 1 through 12, okay. the adulterous woman. Right. How, when you're teaching that and you come to that verse, do you offer your opinion of the controversy around it or you just oh plow yeah. through it and teach it? Or, or And also, what do you recommend a good book uh, on text bibliology or text criticism? Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, I should jot myself a note for a text critical bibliography. Um, I know I like Metzger, Bruce Metzger, um, and there's other sources. Um, Philip Comfort on how we got our Bible uh, has a good summary. Uh, Gordon Fee. There's there's a number of, of authors that I, I tend to go to again and again for those kind of questions. Uh, the real famous passages are John 8, the, the Pericope de Adultera, the adulterous woman story, um, because it's so long. It's so many verses long. And, uh, and it's not original to the Gospel of John. Uh, and it's in none of the early manuscripts. And when it does start to appear in the manuscripts, it shows up in different places, uh, in different chapters, in different sections of John. Some manuscripts even have it in Luke instead of John. And so uh, it's really uh, not clear uh, how it got inserted or why it got inserted. But once it did, uh, scribes were very leery about taking it out because, you know, they're copying scrolls that they're working with. So... So that's a pretty famous example. Uh, Mark 16, uh, how long is the ending to the Gospel of Mark? That's maybe the second. Does, does Mark 16 end at verse 8? Does it end at verse 20? There's even manuscripts that go past verse 20. And so you've got additional verses beyond that. Um, and then maybe the next famous after that would be um, the, the, the verse in 1 John chapter 5 that uh, Erasmus had to add on a dare because he bet somebody and... and they, they created a forgery, so he had to put it back. He knew it didn't belong in the Greek text, but because he said he would do it if they could find one, so he did. And um, Anyway, it doesn't belong in 1 John 5. And, and the neat thing about text criticism, it al allows us to evaluate all the manuscripts and determine you know, what did the original manuscript say and what got added and what got changed and things like that. We've got over 5,000 Greek manuscripts to work with, so it really helps. It really helps. But I'll, uh, I'll put a list together, a book list for that, and, uh, and I'll announce it next week, and then I'll shoot it out by an email to you. No, you're welcome. Yeah, that's a great question. I usually reserve it for third-year Greek, but uh, usually there's things that come up in the first couple of years, and they get some stuff along the way anyway. So, But the actual disciplined part of it, I, I try to teach in the third year. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right, other questions tonight? Welcome. Good to have you all here. Any other questions this evening? You're going to be easy on me tonight. All right, Robert's got a question. We'll cross the aisle and be bipartisan this evening. In Acts, when they talk about the meeting, the first meeting, when the Holy Spirit came down and um, the 12 of them were there and they were speaking in tongues, mm -hmm. 
it conceivable that they were just speaking what they thought to be their own language and everyone there heard it in their own language? Uh, that's possible. It's been speculated on. Yeah, it's been speculated on that that phenomenon of Acts chapter 2 was not, you know, although it uses the word tongues, it says tongues as a fire rested upon them. Um, and so it's usually thought of as the same as the gift of tongues that's spoken of in, in 1 Corinthians, for example. But it may have been more of an audible phenomenon than a linguistic phenomena in, uh, in different ways. And, and there have been authors that have spoken on that. I tend to think it was you know, a tongue phenomena of, of glossolalia, as we call it, that they were speaking in the languages that they didn't even comprehend what they were saying. If I started speaking in Swahili right now, I wouldn't have a clue what I was saying because I don't speak Swahili. I wouldn't know. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. The interpretation is curious to me because there's tongues and the interpretation of tongues, right? And all of these went away in the first century, so I've never uh, observed a legitimate application of this. But um, the idea of tongues and interpretation of tongues, the interpretation, I think, more often than not, was for the benefit of the guy who just got done speaking because <laughs> he didn't know what he was saying. And so uh, then he gets edified by the fact that the interpreter can send it back to him and, and let him know what he was talking about. So that answer your question? Yeah. Okay. I've had that on my mind for a while. And mm -hmm. Yeah, there have been others that have spoken on the same thing. That it could have been an audible phenomenon instead of a linguistic one. So. Excellent. All right. Anything else? Other questions? Going once, going twice. Okay. Well then, thank you, sir. Appreciate you running the microphone. Philippians 1 and verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think we've uh, done the review now for the, the uh, salutation. We've done the review for he who began a good work in you. We have did the review uh, on Sunday for uh, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that's a great section there because that keeps us from pouting about our circumstances or blaming our circumstances as, a, as an excuse for why we're not doing things. Uh, our circumstances are exactly where God wants us, and uh, he expects us to stay faithful in, uh, in every circumstance. So, uh, and the ones we may not choose for ourselves are the ones that he chose for us and are going to result in the greater glory than we would have had otherwise. So the chapter concludes then with uh, verses 19 through 30, uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And that's what I want to review here tonight. It's a section that uh, I'm not sure how many classes we took. Let me also show you something here, too, while I'm at it. If I open up my web browser, we can test out our new Internet connection. I'm told it got upgraded today, so that's good. And obviously, when you start Chrome, AustinBibleChurch.com is supposed to be your home page that will load immediately. Uh, but when you select the Philippians link, uh, it's really neat. Jacob designed this in such a nifty way where you can dr really drill down by uh, content and subject matter and different things. So you notice when I clicked on, on uh, Philippians, the Philippians page loaded and all the, the most recent MP3s are right there at the top. Uh, if you don't want it in, the, in the, the most recent order to the beginning, you can just click on listen and it'll re-number uh, that column for you, take you back to, uh, to the beginning. Uh, it's just a toggle click that will... Uh, run that from top to bottom or bottom to top. Over there on the right, though, you've got the menu that indexes uh, the material. So the chapter one material, uh, not only can you select everything here on chapter one, but then you can even break it down by these segments, verses one and two, verses three through 11, verses 12 through 18, and verses 19 through 30. And you'll note that those match up real well with the outline that, that we give and the, the verses that we're looking at. So what we're gonna review tonight is verses 19 through 30. And uh, as we attempt to do this, uh, you'll notice there's like 20 lessons there, uh, or just under 20, from 57 to 72. So that's a lot. That's a lot of content. That's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of material. And uh, there's no way we're going to boil it all down into just tonight. You know, even if I kept you till midnight or 2 a.m., we're not going to be able to boil all of that down in, uh, in a single review message. So we'll just see how it goes. And uh, if... Uh, I feel like uh, we didn't get very far tonight and I want to do it again on Sunday, then maybe we'll do more of this on Sunday or else we'll move on into chapter two and do the review there uh, Sunday morning. So if you want to pray for that, you can pray for that. All right. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And uh, really, as this section starts, uh, we had the rejoicing already in verse 18. And now um, 
There's more rejoicing as you read 18 through 20. Paul's present rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. And, uh, and you have this here. So when you look at verse 18, it, he talks about uh, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. That's a present tense. The present rejoicing. And then he repeats it. He says, yes, I will rejoice. So his present rejoicing isn't going to stop. In fact, he plans on additional rejoicing in the future. And then even beyond that, even more rejoicing. Because he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So there's going to be even more rejoicing. And verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And this is the, the conundrum that he wrestles with for the rest of the chapter. Should I, should I stay or should I go, right? Should, am I going to live or am I going to die? And which one do I root for? Because uh, they both sound great. You know, dying is, is gain. Dying is to be face-to-face with the Lord. But staying here means more fruit, and it means uh, uh, edification of, of the Philippians and other saints and, and, uh, and aspects there. So he has a hard time knowing what to choose. So there's present rejoicing, future rejoicing, and even additional rejoicing down the road that he can anticipate. We talk about a number of aspects here. Let me just run through these slides. Paul anticipates a salvation there is a salvation he's anticipating in verse 19, a soteria, all right? Now, it's not that this is one of those uses of, of salvation that we recognize. It doesn't mean uh, believing in Jesus and receiving eternal life. Paul's already passed that stage, right? Uh, but this is a, a, a physical rescue from physical danger. It's a, a use of salvation in uh, one of the three or four ways that we categorize the expression. But he says that this will result in my salvation or my deliverance through your prayers and provision, and, and yet it might be through death. Death would be a salvation, or release from jail would be a salvation. He says either way, it's a salvation, not contingent with his life or his death. Paul knows that their corporate prayer support will sustain him. His prayer support becomes the logistical supply through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And uh, this is true in all the, the prison epistles, the uh, imprisonment correspondence. His expectation and hope for this salvation is to not be put to shame in anything. Uh, the idea of shame, bringing shame to the name of Jesus Christ was unthinkable. Uh, so much so that if, if, uh, if, you know, enduring the shame, like Jesus endured the shame, that if he uh, was to fail in that assignment, if he was to bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ, then that would be uh, it's so unthinkable that uh, the idea of being saved then is not worth it. <laughs> you know, why rescue me from this if I'm going to bring shame to the name of Christ? And uh, it, it shows the sense of priority and the sense of importance that Paul put on that. We have earnest expectation and hope. Of course, Elpis, the blessings of hope. We should be the most hopeful people on the planet because we stand in a living hope that we uh, are born again to that living hope in which we stand and uh, as we're introduced to grace. It's a marvelous study when you want to study Elpis and go through those principles there. Not only is that an emphasis for Paul, but it's also taught by Hebrews, by Peter, and by, jo by John. With all boldness, exalt Christ always and especially now. With all boldness, exalt Christ always and especially now. And that's a bit of a rewording of the verse. The verse is verse 20. But he says, with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. The word ordering is, is interesting on this, but to me there's, there's two contexts that are being uh, displayed simultaneously because there's the idea of the always and then there's the idea of the even now. And so to me that's a, that's a neat way to think about it as we function, as we grow, as we learn the Bible, as we walk our Christian walk. Um, we want to have a consistent walk with Jesus always. We want to we wanna be learning always. We want to be praying always. We want to be glorifying Jesus always. Uh, we want that to be what's normal so that when we come into a crisis moment, when we come into a, a situation like Paul's dealing with or we do from time to time, we end up in this, in this even now moment where, uh, where we're under maximum testing or something else is going on. The even now can just, can just 
be taken in stride. It's just like another day at the office. It's just a, a normal course of events because I'm always glorifying Jesus Christ. Why would even now be different? See, So there's a, a uh, kind of an emphasis on this. Paul's expectation and hope was to exalt Christ in his body, whether he lives or he dies. Uh, the always way of life becomes tested in various even now moments of great testing. And so it's almost like, um, if I can rip off that silly uh, Verizon commercial, right? You remember those cell phone commercials, that can you hear me now thing? Well, really, that's kind of an illustration of what this verse is saying. Because if you're walking with the Lord and walking by faith and, and things are, you know, the, the, the normal Christian walk and you trust God on a daily basis, well, how about now, Okay. How about under these testing circumstances, all right? How about now? Do you still love the Lord? Are you still walking by faith? Are you still trusting in His faithfulness? Are you still praising Him? Well, what about now? See, and so each of these circumstances, really, the tests God puts us through uh, become the opportunity for us to, to demonstrate that we don't change what we're doing because some circumstance came up or some test came up or some dis, uh, disappointment or discouragement happened in our lives. We're not victims of our happenstance. That's the thing. And uh, I know I've illustrated that before too, the idea of happy, uh, happy, and, the, and the, the connection between the noun happy and uh, the noun happen or happenstance. And, and how many people do you know, depending on what happens, in their life drives whether they're happy or they're unhappy, <laughs> you know? And it's just like, what an unstable existence. How do you float, you know, bounce up and down with that? Because, you know, good things happen, bad things happen. And if your happiness is linked to the things that happen, that's an issue, all right? And so uh, we want to we wanna overcome that. And so the always way of life becomes tested in various even now moments of great testing. All right. Kevin, we're good? All right. Anyway, there's uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 that helps to illustrate that too. Uh, Rejoice always in everything, give thanks, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So we don't stop rejoicing, we don't stop praying, we don't stop giving thanks, even uh, in the even now moments when it becomes a gut check. Like, okay, really? Do I believe this? Am I going to live this out? Or am I going to be a phony? Am I going to be a great big hypocrite when it comes down to, uh, comes down to that? whether by life or by death. And uh, that's what he talks about here in verse 20, whether by life or by death. Either way, whatever God chooses to do, I'm going to glorify Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. This is the old master of circumstances and details of life, if you've ever been exposed to that, the teaching from Pastor R.B. Thiem at Bracca Church, that uh, mastery of the circumstances and details of life. I tried to rename it. I noticed it never caught on. Um, but the idea because we don't actually master the circumstances, we just master our mental attitude during the circumstances. And so really we could rephrase it as the steadfast divine viewpoint throughout every circumstance and detail of both life and death too, by the way, because there's circumstances and details of life and there's circumstances and details of death. And so whether it's life or death, we should be able to maintain a steadfast divine viewpoint to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord, to keep our eyes on the Lord, no matter what the circumstances and details are. That becomes our, uh, our blessing there. All right. Of course, we have Zoe, my daughter's name for life, and then death is Thanatos. We'll go back through those. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Do we really know what it means to live? You know, until we're saved, we don't live. We have biological life, we're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And then we believe in Jesus Christ and we're made alive. Remember, in Adam all die, in Christ all are made alive. And so we become believers in Jesus Christ and now all of a sudden we're living for the first time with Zoe life. We're living for the first time with Zoe life, with the life that's the life of God himself. The only kind of life that's ever called eternal is this Zoe life. And so that life is Christ himself. The present active infinitive of Zao defines the very idea of living as Christ himself. In other words, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That before I got saved, it was all about me. The life of the unbeliever, the life of the carnal believer, the life of this world is just focused on self. 
But the life of Christ is focused on not self, focused on others. Jesus wasn't thinking of himself when he was hanging on the cross. He was thinking about you and me and, and, and everyone. That's the nature of sacrificial love that thinks about the other is more important than themselves. And so we have the issue here. John 1, 4, in him was life and the life was the light of man. And 1 Corinthians 1, 30, other references there. It's not I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then uh, death is gain. Death is gain. It's profit. It's, uh, it's the ultimate profit because we get to cast off uh, mortality and put on immortality. We cast off shame and put on glory. Curdino and Curdos. And I remember we spent a lot of time on this slide and we had several classes on this issue because we live in a culture whereby profit is, is viewed as bad that uh, capitalism is evil and profit is wicked and, and uh, that if you pursue a profit some, for some nefarious reason, you're obviously uh, greedy or things like that. And a profit is positive. Profit is a blessing. And this is what God himself promotes, that through productivity we have an abundance and through the abundance we're able to share. And there's the, the blessings associated with the abundance of productivity. And uh, profit is spoken of as a good thing. So uh, whether we're dealing with kurdos or the verb kurdino or the other aspects there, uh, it can be rendered as profit. It can also be rendered as winning, that you can win your brother, for example, if you uh, come to him privately and exhort him in the word of God and, and he admits to, to what it is that's the issue there. You can win your brother, in which case, who profits, right? Everybody. He does, you do, the Lord does. It's a marvelous thing. All right. So some of those were a blessing to I, I do intend to stop and look at some of these verses, but uh, just not yet. <laughs> All right. Paul affirms his mindset as his personal perspective, yet he frequently encourages his readers to adopt the same attitudes. And, and the way he expresses it, sometimes, you know, Paul was no, he wasn't uh, shy about giving commands. He was very easy to, to give commands and to order people around. But then there were other occasions when instead of using apostolic authority, he would just speak from the heart and he would encourage others to follow his example and just lay it out there in, in, uh, in these ways. And I think he does that here. I think uh, we can see some of those issues um, where he just talks about his heart and he talks about his priorities and, uh, and just lays them out there for their consideration. So when he says to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, uh, you know, as far as I look at it as far as my perspective goes. Uh, that's how I look at it. Clearly, uh, it's being recorded by the Holy Spirit in the canon of Scripture, and it's being shared with all of us uh, that are reading this, uh, this text. So it's not just to Paul. We, we likewise can share in that perspective. We likewise can have uh, that attitude that says living is for the glory of Christ and, uh, and dying is the gain. Inviting others to share his view. All right. The Pauline contrasts of life and death are useful in the beside-the-point points that they make. You know, it's kind of neat. When you, make, when you make a point and then you say, you know what, this is really beside the point, but then you make a, a big point out of it, um, then you start to wonder if, uh, if, in fact, that really is the point. <laughs> and so I think uh, we see this here in verses 20 and 21, you know, living and dying. Well, yeah, okay. But really, living and dying is beside the point. Those are just the venues in which I glorify Christ or I bring shame. And I don't want to bring shame. I want to glorify Christ. And so living and dying, uh, we have some issues here. So here's some principles. We can look at some of these verses. First of all, our life in Christ is Christ living in us. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. You can read that. Galatians 2, verses 19 and 20. My mother's favorite verse was Galatians 2.20. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So it's a matter of life and death. But then he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, uh, he says, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you're not living for the Lord, why are you saved? If, uh, if you're living for self, like you used to do back when you weren't saved, um, why did he save you? Why did he send his son? What, what are you really doing? Are you nullifying the grace of God? 
That's the, uh, the expression there. And he says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. We'll have a class on Sunday talking about nullifying the cross, nullifying the grace of God, nullifying the work of Jesus Christ. Because if, if the Levitical priesthood could perfect the conscience, then we didn't need Jesus to go to the cross. We could have just eventually had the Levitical priesthood get us there at some point, if it could ever get us there. Um, the, the, the fact is it could never get us there, which is why Jesus went to the cross. And so that, that principle comes up uh, in the book of Hebrews. There's another beside-the-point point that gets made. Uh, physical death is not an obstacle to our life with Christ. It's, it's the one relationship whereby it's the one marriage relationship that physical death doesn't bring it into because we're the bride of Christ. Every other marriage ends when you, when you physically die. And, uh, you know, when, you, when your spouse dies and you're widowed, uh, that's, the, that's the conclusion of that marriage relationship. The, the wedding I preached on Saturday, they had that till death us do part uh, vow, you know, as, as every decent marriage should. And uh, that's the nature of marriage. It's, it's for this life. And there's even a point of doctrine that says that in the resurrection, because one of the reasons why there's no marrying or giving in marriage in the resurrection is because they cannot die. How do you have a marriage relationship if there's no, if there's no capacity for death? See, so anyway, it's, I'm not saying that. It's the scripture says that. And so uh, I'm just observing. The, uh, but here's a marriage relationship that doesn't end with physical death. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, we talk about being the bride of Christ. And uh, yeah, physical death doesn't stop that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 10. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Physical death is not going to stop it. This was really a question back in 1 Thessalonians. Well, what happens to those who have died in Christ? Are they going to miss the rapture? Uh, if we are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, do we get to go first? And then all those that died before us in Christ, are they, are they just kind of stuck out? Do they got to wait until the Revelation 20 resurrection? Or do they got to wait for the... The, the end of the millennium resurrection? When do they get resurrected? And it was a real concern. And, and it was right to have that concern because if you have a partial resurrection of a partial bride, then Jesus is stuck marrying half a bride or part of a bride. And so uh, uh, it was actually a very legitimate question that Paul answered there in 1 Thessalonians 4, that we who are alive and remain will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that, that those who are in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And uh, the longer this takes to happen, we're here we are in the 21st century, and the longer this takes to happen, really, most of the bride is already there. 20 centuries of the bride is already dead and, 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 and with the Lord face to face in heaven. It's only the current generation that happens to be uh, still remaining on this earth. So physical death, not an obstacle to the bride's life with Christ. Living and dying is a win-win. It is a win-win, as we see in Philippians 1. Living in Christ means we are no longer living in the world and its elementary things. There's a whole world way of thinking, and that was our old way of thinking. We now have a new way of thinking. We have a new way of operating, a new way of existing. Living in Christ means we're no longer living in the world and its elementary things. Now, we're still here. Physically, we're still in the world, but we're not of the world. Uh, we, we, we now become aliens and strangers the moment that we name the name of Christ and we get delivered. We're delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son. And so no longer living in the world and its elementary things means that uh, the, the crowd we used to run with, um, that's going to be an issue. Uh, we're not going to be comfortable with that anymore and they're not going to be comfortable with us anymore and it just kind of becomes awkward. They're going to start to wonder why, uh, why we're not doing what we used to do. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20 and then Colossians 3, 3. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, uh, and this is more than just sin, this is more, this is actually uh, world viewpoint philosophy. 
these elementary things. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? There's a world way of thinking, and we've got to get rid of it. We've got to have our minds renewed. We've got to have our thinking molded by the Word of God and uh, no longer think the way the world would have us think. There's some other issues there, but the elementary principles of the world, do you remember those? They came up in uh, Galatians, actually. We dealt with them some in Galatians, the elementary principles. And uh, we'll be dealing with them again in Colossians. So do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. See, the whole idea behind man-made religion, the whole idea behind the man, uh, the elementary principles that, that so many people are buy into the idea that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, good people go to heaven. All these, these are just elementary things, and they're all wrong. They're just the fundamental philosophies of a fallen world, and Satan promotes all of them. And uh, this, this, this culture is just chasing after it with uh, all the energy they can. Verse 23 says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, severe treatment of the body, but you'll notice they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. The fact is, if, you know, if this is your approach to making yourself a better person by being extra-religious, God's not impressed with any of that. And it's no value in solving any issues with the sin nature. In fact, it just feeds the sin nature more than anything because your sin nature has a, a pride component that... Uh, can uh, really be activated with all this do-goodism that uh, makes you feel good about yourself. There's no value to it. There's no value to it. So, if you have been raised up with Christ, crossing now into Colossians chapter 3, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is our new life. And we should operate this way. All right. Living in Christ means we're no longer living for self, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. That's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. You know, back before you got saved, you lived for yourself. That's how you lived when you were dead. Hollywood thinks they've invented this thing about the living dead. Are you kidding me? God wrote about this a long time ago. The living dead. Because you're physically alive, but you're spiritually dead. And when you were dead, this is how you walked. Okay? Second Corinthians 5. 14, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Notice that? They might no longer live for themselves. That's how they used to live before they lived. But now for him who died and rose again on their behalf. I'm living for Christ because he died for me. That's, uh, that's the impact there. The great theology of Romans highlights spiritual death in Adam and eternal life in Christ. And it does so when you walk your way through these chapters, positionally, experientially, ultimately. Positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, ultimate sanctification. But we have spiritual death in Adam, we have eternal life in Christ. So you can go through those, Romans 5, Romans 6, Romans 8, Romans 14, and see the, the death in Adam and the life in Christ. And that's, to me, that, that keeps it simple. That just lays it out there. All of humanity is either saved or lost. All of humanity is either in Adam or saved by the grace of Jesus Christ and in Christ. And so on that basis, then, everything else is irrelevant. Your race, your gender, your, uh, your ethnic background, your nationality, any of that, uh, because in Christ, we're a new creation. In Christ, there's neither male nor female. There's ne neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. So that, uh, that balances all the, everything that uh, is ripping this country apart in, in little factions and groups and arguments and fights. Um, God solved all that. Get saved. <laughs> Grow in the grace of knowledge. Let's, let's love one another in the body of Christ. 
and all the rest of that stuff goes away. All right, so we have the issues there. Verses 22 through 26, Paul thinks his way through his conundrum as he describes it to the Philippian recipients. You ever think out loud? You ever talk yourself into something or talk yourself out of something and then, you know, your wife or your family member is listening to you as the debate goes back and forth? Kind of Paul's doing that right here. He, he can't figure out if he wants to live or die because he doesn't know how it's going to end. And so he, he's trying to decide what to root for, what to hope for, what to pray for and ask as, uh, as these things approach. And it's curious because he finally settles, he concludes that he's going to live. That's the conclusion he comes to. But even when he comes to that conclusion, he still doubts it later on. All right. I lost Philippians. Where did it go? There it is. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So we do the same thing. You know, we, we look at a decision, we, we weigh the pros and cons, and we kind of think, well, you know, there's good reasons for both decisions. And so now how do you choose? And then he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, the, for your progress and joy in the faith. That's what he finally comes down to. He says, you know what, I'm convinced I've got to benefit the Philippians. I've got to benefit uh, those that I'm ministering to so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, that seems pretty confident. He said he was confident. We're going to see in the verses following that that he still kind of leaves it up in the air when he says, well, okay, maybe. That's why he says in verse 27, whether I come and see you or remain absent. So uh, the principles here. All right. Continued physical life means the fruit of labor. This is a powerful pressure. It's even called a lust. Epithumia is called a lust. The idea of bearing more fruit on the opposite side of going to be with the Lord. And that's, that's curious to me. That's a, that's a drive in the ministry that, um, you know, if I was put in this circumstance, I wouldn't wrestle. I wouldn't be bouncing back and forth. I wouldn't be, you know, not me. I know, live, die. Are you kidding me? Get me out of here. I'm going to go see the Lord. Yeah, but... The saints at Austin Bible Church, they'll be okay. God will take care of them. Are you kidding me? I want to go be with the Lord. So I, I'm confessing tonight that Paul has a, more of a maturity than, I don't know that I would be wrestling with this. It, you know, if the trumpet sounds today, I, I can clear my calendar. I'm ready for the rapture now. All right. But I certainly don't have a lust for more fruit bearing. And, and are you kidding? I mean, yeah, I like teaching the Bible, but going to live with Jesus? Okay. Anyway, that's uh, an interesting description there. He was squeezed from two directions with a lust to depart and be with Christ. Squeezed from two directions. But putting his own desires aside, remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians' sake. And really, that's a good rule of thumb if you're kind of torn, you know, flipping a coin or deciding, uh, well, you know, when it comes down to, well, what benefits the other, instead of yourself? And are you considering the other is more important than yourself? Well then, okay, that can kind of be a good rule of thumb then, that if all other things being equal, since this edifies the other instead of me, all right, let's go with that in uh, the application there. And so persuaded of this necessity, persuaded of this necessity, when he says convinced of this, that convinced is what we looked at a couple weeks ago when we were looking at peso, the verb for persuasion and the verb for uh, uh, being persuaded. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So Paul's Philippian reunion will trigger their joyful progress. And remember, some of this stuff is also helpful for us when we're trying to date the book of Philippians, we're trying to synchronize it with the travels that are recorded in the book of Acts uh, in, in the sense that everything that we read indicates that Paul is writing this letter from the perspective of having only been there once. That that night he spent in the Philippian jail, the night the Philippian jailer got saved, that, that was his only time in Philippi. And that when he left there to go to Thessalonica on the second missionary journey, he had never been back there. Every expression in these chapters points to a single visit 
that when he comes again, it'll be for the second time ever. See? And that's useful for us because otherwise uh, we, we have recorded uh, trips that he made uh, passing through Macedonia, passing through Philippi on the third missionary journey, later on his way to write the book of Romans, on his way to Corinth. And, uh, and, and some of that becomes problematic. In fact, some of that is defeated and makes no sense at all uh, with the expressions that Paul uses here in the book of Philippians. So just um, keep that in mind, too, as you're trying to evaluate for yourself uh, when you think Philippians was written, early or late, from Rome or from, from Ephesus, those kind of things. All right, triggering their joyful progress. I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And uh, that, that sparks some discussion because, you know, we all want to grow, right? Don't we want to grow? You want to you make progress in your walk? Well, what kind of progress do you want to make? You should be making progress in your faith. I think we all get that. But also progress in your joy. That's what it says. That... Uh, Remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that's kind of neat. All right, and then with point six, Paul issues a powerful exhortation for the Philippians to apply. He says, only this, (laughs) only, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh, is that all? (laughs) Only, okay, only. That's all you want me to do, conduct myself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Well, so he issues a powerful exhortation for the Philippians to apply until such a time that he can be reunited with them. So he says, conduct yourselves, live as citizens, live as citizens. Only is a pretty big only. It's even bigger than the Galatians only. When he says, conduct yourselves, this is um, a word for politics. It's uh, polituamai, conduct yourselves, uh, funct- live, your, uh, live your public life, live your public life. And, uh, and so sometimes we try to separate these things and, and, and we, we, we think that, well, you know, I've got a private life and then I've got a public life, okay? Do you really? How different are they? Do you ever get tired trying to maintain two lives, <laughs> you know? How many of you just have a life before the Lord that is the same in private, in public, in, in, in church, and wherever else you go? Um, so that when you conduct yourself, you're actually conducting yourself living as a citizen. It's a present middle imperative of polituamai. Uh, so conduct yourself, live your life, be political. <laughs> um, so, uh, and and. We spent a lot of time in this too, several classes talking about the politics of it and why, um, you know, how politics are different. Uh, political life in America is different from political life in China, right? Or political life in Cameroon, political life uh, in, in different places right now where we've got brothers and sisters getting shot at in, uh, in different places. So, uh, yeah, political life's different. But ultimately speaking, uh, Philippians tells us our citizenship is in heaven. So, how do we conduct our political life there? Right? So, I mean, it's. One thing, being an American in America uh, is something else to be an American in Ukraine or to be an American in Nigeria or somewhere else. All right, so how does that affect how you conduct your life? Because our citizenship is in heaven. We live here as ambassadors. We live here as pilgrims and strangers. And uh, we don't ever want to lose sight of that. So in conducting ourselves, when he says only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, uh, live, your, live as citizens of the gospel. Because that's what we proclaim. There's other aspects there. The citizenship now comes up in Philippians 3.20. We've got uh, uh, the verb that's used here. It's also used in Acts 23.1, one of Paul's defenses. And he talks about his manner of life. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And that's polituamai. He says he's done that. A polites is a citizen. Yeah, the Greeks had a lot of political vocabulary, and we stole most of it. <laughs> Our founding fathers stole most of it. They definitely wanted to have a republic, not a democracy, and they definitely made use of uh, of uh, 
Plato and, and other Greek authors related to the Republic and other things. All right. Worthily. Axios. Worthily. In a manner worthy of. And the idea of, uh, of what's worthy or unworthy. I like to end my, uh, when you read the newsletter, my word or two column from Pastor Bob ends with the signature line of, of anoxios, unworthy, right? None of us are worthy. It means unworthy, but Christ makes us worthy in, uh, in his grace. So walk in a manner worthy. It's used you have, of scales in the ancient world where things were weighed out and uh, you had to bring the right amount of silver and they put it in the scale to make sure that it, was the, you're paying the, the proper amount. And uh, so the idea of, okay, I've got the gospel over here on this side of the scale, and I've got my life over here on this end of the scale. And how do they measure up? Do they balance? Is my life worthy of the gospel? Because the gospel is infinite. The gospel is amazing. It's the power of God unto salvation. And I want my life to be worthy of that. And so to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and worthy of the calling with which we've been called we have uh, imperatives there. So not only in Philippians, but in Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 3 John, there's a lot in the New Testament that talks about our worthy walk. And, uh, and when you read through those verses and remind yourself of these things, remember that the worthiness cannot be intrinsic to you. <laughs> you're not going imp- to impress God with what you can demonstrate is your worthiness. You're going to impress God by accepting in grace His worthiness. And then, because the life that you now live, it's, it's Christ. Living is Christ. So living worthily means walking in grace because it can't be your own worthiness. Anyway, that's, uh, let's look at these. We've got some time. Romans 16, 2. In verse 1, he says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a deaconess of the church, which is at Sancria. I realize it's translated servant, and some people want to leave it as servant, but it is a feminine noun, and it's the feminine noun of diakonos. It's the feminine form of deacon. And I have no problem rendering it as deaconess, uh, unless you have a theological hang-up that doesn't like women deacons. Uh, That's the plain language of the verse. That you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Axios, worthy of the saints. And that you help her in whatever manner she may have need of you. That's a blank check. Paul just said, whatever she needs, provide it. For she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. What a recommendation. And uh, coming from the church at St. Crea, we didn't know St. Crea had a church except for that verse there that mentioned, uh, mentioned it. Ephesians 4.1, more worthiness. Ephesians is essentially two halves. There's chapters 1 through 3 and then chapters 4 through 6. You've got the deep theology of 1 through 3 and then the application in 4 through 6. But therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So he's not ordering them. He's not standing as an apostle and telling them what to do, but he's begging them. He's imploring them as a uh, prisoner. He says, I beg you, I implore you to walk in a manner Axios, worthy of the calling with which you've been called. To walk in a manner worthy. And this, uh, this is a marvelous definition, or really a description of grace, and the fact that under law, you're, you're serving and staying faithful and working hard, attempting to merit something that will come someday. A consequence will be, will be granted by reward or inheritance or blessing. But under grace, it's the other way around. Right? The cart and the horse are swapped around. Because under grace, all the blessings come up front. We're saved. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have our portfolio of assets, the down payment of what the eternal assets are going to be. Everything is given up front. And so we, when we walk in a manner worthy, that's not so that we're hoping to attain something one day. It's because we appreciate what has already been bestowed upon us by the grace of God. And so in reflection of that, in, anti- in uh, appreciation of that, in a, in a grace manner that, is, uh, that corresponds to the grace that we've received, we want to walk in that worthy manner, which means it can't be legalism, it has to be grace. <laughs> Let me tell you, legalism is absolutely not worthy of the calling with which we've been called. 
So anyone that wants to be a legalist about their church membership or their church involvement or whatever else, um, if you want to be a legalist about what you're doing in your Christian walk, that is so unworthy of the, go- of the gospel, of the grace uh, that has saved us. And so it says there, of the calling with which you have been called. Uh, Philippians 1.27 is what we're looking at tonight. Uh, Colossians 1.10. For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so now we're going to put the Lord on this side of the scale, and then my walk is going to be over here. And how does this scale tip? Are you kidding me? Well, by God's grace, if the life that I now live is, is Christ, well, then it's Christ on both sides, and it balances grace. Uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's what it's all about. The whole idea that you can get saved and then just kick back and wait to die and go to heaven is, is insane. Salvation is step one of, of the rest of your life, pleasing God, glorifying Jesus Christ with, with your walk. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Verse 10 says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. This is such an intimate chapter. He's talking about being a loving father. Uh, earlier, up in verse 7, he talked about being a nursing mother. You know, I don't imagine Paul ever nursed anybody. But, uh, you know, but he uses the female imagery as a nursing mother. He uses the, the, the male imagery of, uh, of an exhorting father exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. So we have the worthy walk. You know, when it comes down to it, this could be a, a confession item. This could be any, any sin, as you name the sin. You know, I lied, I stole, I cheated, I murdered. Whatever you did, whatever your last confession was, or whatever your next confession is going to be, okay, you can say, in addition to the, the thing you did, you could also add to that and say, Father, my walk was not worthy of the calling with which I've been called. And because I'm commanded to walk in a manner worthy, my failure to walk in a manner worthy, what's that? It's called a sin of omission. It means I know the thing to do, but I've not done it. That's a sin. So the failure to walk in a worthy, worthy matter, actually, you could add that to every First John 1, 9 confession you ever give and say, Father, uh, I committed a sin. I, uh, I'm walking in darkness. I'm not walking in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called. Those are all items you can name before the Father in, uh, in your confession. 3 John 6. 3 John 6. Third John is a single chapter book. It does not have a chapter one. I did not say chapter one, verse six. I just said Third John six. It's a pet peeve, but uh, I've had it all my life. All right, Third John six. Verse five says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they're strangers and they have testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of, of God, the grace and hospitality we show to the royal family of God, to the, the fellow believers in the body of Christ. For they went out among the, uh, for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. And uh, Jim Myers contacted me and let me know that I'd had an invitation to come and take part in Oleg Lazinski's ordination in Kiev, Ukraine next month. I thought, wow, what a privilege. I want to support such men in the truth as Oleg is such a humble servant and the blessings of being able to take part in that. So we count that as a blessing. All right, so walking in a manner worthy, standing firm, standing firm. All right, how much time do we have left? We're almost there. 
There's a point seven, there's a point eight. There's some A's and B's. <laughs> Almost made it. Standing firm. The present active indicative, and it comes with a present active participle. And uh, that's grammar, and I know grammar bores a lot of people, but here's the thing. The, um, the present active participle coincides with the action of the main verb. In fact, it defines the action of the main verb. So if you want to know, well, how do I stand firm? Strive together. Struggle together. The, the participle defines the imperative, defines the verb. And so, as we see it here, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is verse 27 of Philippians 1. Um, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So those are the verbal activities that are there. I want to hear of you. Paul says, you know, as confident as I was in, in verse 25, uh, I might die here in this jail and I may never see you again. But what I want to hear, the report I want to get back, is that you are standing firm in one spirit. So there's the first verb we've got to deal with. It's stako, and the idea of standing firm. And then um, the uh, striving together for the faith of the gospel is a further description. It's a, as a present active participle, grammatically now, it coincides with the action of the main verb. It actually defines the action of the main verb, right? We talk about this when we talk about make disciples in the Great Commission. The commission is make disciples. Well, how do I make disciples? Teaching them and baptizing them, we're told. Those are the participles that define the imperative. And so here, the participle of striving together defines the imperative of standing firm. And really, uh, I remember stressing this heavily, and I hope you caught the drift, and maybe you didn't, so you can catch it tonight. The idea is, if you're not striving together, then you're not standing firm. That if you're not getting on board and joining with the struggle, if you're not on the team, if you're not in the, in the athletic uh, endeavor, in other words, if you insist on, if your version of biblical Christianity is a spectator sport, you're not standing firm because you're not striving together. You're not out there on the playing field with your teammates and, and working together towards the goal. And so when you're looking at, at stako as a verb to stand firm, and when you're looking at striving together, the participle that defines the imperative, soon athleo, and that athleo compound, you know, where we get athlete, where we get athletic, where we get the, 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 the struggle. And so to, to synchronize your struggle with his struggle, to, to put those struggles together in a soon athleo compound is what we have here. So the idea is, if, uh, if you're... Uh, what is this, basketball season? I don't even know what time of year this is. April? Okay. So in the NBA, this is also baseball season. Okay. It's not football season. I just lose track. All right. Um, <laughs> so pick your sport, right? Whatever sport. I don't care. Baseball, basketball, football, whatever. Hockey even. Um, whatever your sport is, the fellow athletes are the ones out there on the field. The ones out there contributing, the ones out there, you know, sweating and working and, and contributing. The, the guy up there in the stands eating the hot dog and drinking the beer and whatever he's doing, he's, he's a spectator, okay? He's a fan, and he might wave his arms or do the wave or cheer or whatever. Um, he's not a fellow athlete. He's not contributing to the win. He thinks he's contributing to the win. He goes home and feels good about himself because he, he'll take credit for whatever he thinks is his contribution to the team's success, okay? And we've all, I've done it too, we've all done it, you know? Talk about, do you remember the year that we won the Super Bowl? Well, wait a minute. What's this we you're talking about? You're talking about the year that uh, they, the Seattle Seahawks, your childhood team, won the Super Bowl? That's been a while, you know? Hadn't been lately. But why do we say we, you know? Yeah, I remember when we won... Or when we won the National Football Championship, talking about the Texas Longhorns. Yeah, I remember when we won that, because I drove down, I saw the Orange Tower. <laughs> I wasn't really on the field with Vince Young and contributing towards the, the winning touchdown there and 
against USC, okay? Watching Pete Carroll cry, that was fun. So the whole illustration here, when we talk about we, when we talk about striving together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Grammatically, this verse defines standing firm as struggling together, striving together. So if you're not striving together, if you're not on the field fighting for your team, you're not standing firm. Grammatically, you can't, uh, this verse denies you that as a possibility. Uh, thank you, Father, for tonight. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for everything you've taught us over the last two years. And as we look back over it, Father, it's, it's amazing, uh, the, just the wealth that you've supplied. So thank you for it. I pray that we can remember, that we can make application, that uh, we can review these things again and again. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.